0: Nina Jankowicz is a Washington DC based writer and analyst with a focus on Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. She is currently a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars Kennan Institute. Previously, she served as a Fulbright Clinton public policy fellow, a role in which she provided strategic communications guidance to the Ukrainian foreign ministry. Since the publication of How to Lose the Information War, she has appeared on CNN and NPR and testified before the U.S. House Intel Committee. In this episode, as a part of our Politics minicast, I talk to Nina about her experience seeing the Russian disinformation machine up close, its interference in the 2020 U.S. election, how we as citizens can fight the same systems she sees in the U.S. and around the world, and finally, what's actually at stake, the future of democracy and the value of truth itself. Take a listen you're listening to the bloomsbury academic podcast i'm your host rebecca moroski and today i'm speaking with nina Jenkowitz, the author of how to lose the information war thank you so much for being on this show nina and you know obviously in the build-up to the election in the United States, uh, like your book is just incredibly relevant right now, so I really appreciate your being on.
1: Thanks, Rebecca. I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy, of course, to have Bloomsbury Academic as a publisher. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, you know, just reading your book, it's it's clear that you've just had so many different experiences with misinformation, be it in the Czech Republic or Estonia or Georgia. Um, can you explain a little bit how and why you came to write this book?
1: Sure. So I'll try to give you the more of the cliff notes version because the 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 real saga is quite quite long and uh, kind of lifelong in some ways. So my family uh, is Polish and Ukrainian. I kind of grew up um, with a. Uh, you know, an interest in in that part of the world, probably before most kids could even find those places on a map. Um, And when I was in college, I studied Russian. I I ended up doing a master's degree in Russian and East European studies as well. And my first job out of graduate school was with uh, an organization called the National Democratic Institute, which is a democracy support organization. It gets mostly U.S. government funding um, and was founded in the 80s to kind of, uh, you know, help uh, democratic activists around the world and in particular in in the Soviet Union at that time and what ended up being the post-Soviet, post-communist space. Um, So I worked on Russia and Belarus programs for a few years right after my master's degree. um, And it was clear from, from that experience that Russia was already using information influence tactics Online um, taking advantage of social media in order to influence the conversation in order to get you know policy um, policy outcomes that were desirable for the Kremlin and that all really came to a head with the Ukraine conflict which um, kind of burst onto the scene in 2013 2014 of course uh, became even more important with the annexation the illegal annexation of Crimea in uh, February of 2014 by Russia and I Having you know grown up on the internet and really been interested in political organizing tactics online in particular, um, really started honing in on this. And I decided, uh, as you know, the Ukraine conflict was was happening that it was time for me to go work abroad. Um, I had lived abroad and done a lot of traveling during uh, grad school and my undergrad, but I I really wanted to get my hands dirty. Um, And there was this Fulbright Fellowship called the Fulbright Clinton Public Policy Fellowship. It was for more mid-career people. So the Fulbright normally brings like either scholars, advanced scholars to teach at universities or um, recent graduates to teach English uh, to usually high school students. Um, But this mid-career program, placed people like me in ministries uh, in the government of the host country. So I ended up working as a strategic communications advisor to the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, And it was just a really instructive experience. I mean, understanding what a country on the front lines of the information war was going through on a daily basis, especially um, needing to kind of balance the informational aspect of that war with the actual kinetic aspect, um, really, really eye opening. And the entire time I was there, the backdrop at home was the 2016 us election. So I got to Ukraine in September of 2016, two months later, Trump won the election and the revelations about Russian interference, which, you know, people who were Russia watchers, um, I had long suspected came into light uh, and the most important thing for me really was as I was sitting watching in in Kiev was that you know my Ukrainian colleagues and other Europeans that I would talk to as I was doing my research around Central and Eastern Europe were just shocked that we had never recognized the threat of Russian disinformation before. Um, and so that's where the idea for the book was born, really. Um, just looking at how much progress these countries had made, the the issues they had dealt with for so long, um, and the fact that the United States at that point really seemed to be either in complete ignorance of the problem or attempting to reinvent the wheel. And so this is kind of my my call to action, I guess that you know not only do we not need to reinvent the wheel, um, we need to recognize Russian interference and disinformation writ large as a as a reality of the twenty first century and the internet age, and really shore up a response that not only includes government but builds societal resilience as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, your editor calls you a modern day Cassandra. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> In, this yeah, he does. In this respect, just that, you know, you're you're talking about the threat and so many people are listening, but they're clearly not hearing it. Um well, yeah, I mean, on that point, like you you call it an information war, which I think a war, which captures the fact that misinformation, disinformation has been such a successful strategic weapon used across the geopolitical landscape. But it seems like we're losing that war or not taking it seriously, including people here in the United States, because they don't understand it or necessarily care as much as they should because they can't define it or don't fully register its scope. You use a, like a lot of terminology in your book to highlight its its scale such as disinformation, malinformation, fake news. Um could you go into distinguishing those terms a little bit for people who are a bit mystified?
1: Sure. So I think the the broad and overarching term that we should all use to describe this stuff um is either information warfare or influence campaigns. Um I I tend to actually use I think it, it, although we'd have to do a control F to figure that out for sure. I think I use influence campaigns more in the book because I do talk about things like malign monetary influence, money laundering, that sort of stuff, uh, influence through cultural organizations, which is informational in its own right. But of course, because of the internet era, you know, trolls and bots and that stuff, uh, is a lot more exciting to most people. And, and frankly, it's more familiar and more understandable to them. Um, I think there's a misconception that disinformation is, you know, about, it's about a bunch of dank memes or it's stuff that's just like, you know, totally cut and dry fake. Um, that couldn't be farther from the truth. What disinformation does is capitalize on real grievances in society in order to drive us against one another. And so there's a difference between disinformation and misinformation. Often they're used interchangeably in the media. Disinformation has malign intent behind it. It is either false or misleading information shared with malign intent. And with the Kremlin in mind, their goal is, again, to to drive discord in the American system and decrease our faith in our democratic processes. Misinformation, on the other hand, does not have that malign intent. That's just, you know, your, your aunt or uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner table, or, you know, everybody's got that crazy relative, right? Uh, whether it's Thanksgiving or just sharing stuff on Facebook who, uh, who thinks that, you know, they mean well, but they perhaps err on the little, a little bit on the conspiratorial side. Um, that's the, the key difference there uh, fake news it's interesting um, to, to talk about that one because as I said you know most disinformation is grounded in a kernel of truth and though the, the term fake news is in the subtitle of my book I did uh, I did you know have a little bit of a discussion with the folks at Bloomsbury about whether I wanted that or not because I personally try to avoid using the term because I think it's misleading and especially in the context that we're in today where uh, political leaders whether it's President Trump or do Duterte in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil, all of them have used the term fake news in order to denigrate uh, information that that, you know, undermines their legitimacy or is critical of them, information that's inconvenient to to their political reality. Um, and so the term has kind of lost meaning. We've just seen, in fact, uh, th- this week as we're recording the pro- podcast, the news about President Trump's tax returns come out and President Trump called those fake news, um, just as a, as a very visceral example of how that happens. So I try not to use that term, but I think um, it is a signpost for people because it's become slang for, you know, this greater, uh, phenomenon that we're seeing. And then we have stuff like malinformation, which you mentioned. That's sort of the hack and leak um, uh, structure that we we saw used in 2016, where uh, Russia and Russia-aligned groups and individuals hacked the Democratic National Committee and released emails related to that to kind of, uh, you know... Uh, overtake the news cycle and, and again, denigrate Secretary Clinton and her campaign. We also saw the same thing in, uh, in the French election in 2016, 2017, excuse me. Um, and uh, they were able to fight it because they were kind of proactively expecting it. And they seeded some fake emails among the real documents and knew to release a statement very quickly before they could take hold. So uh, the French learned their lessons there. And then we have propaganda, of course, which uh, is a term that many people probably remember from the Soviet era. Um, it is not as helpful when we're talking about Russian disinformation because propaganda usually supports one political ideology. Um, that's more what we're seeing actually coming from China right now during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, that's pro-Chinese, pro-CCP, uh, tries to cast Chinese policy around coronavirus and other things in in a positive light. Uh, it doesn't have that Russian disinformation does not have that political motivation in the same way. Um, so that's our wide variety of terms. I think precision is really important when we're talking about them because, frankly, the the biggest mistake that we hear made is that um, discussion of intent. And you'll hear Facebook talk about misinformation on its platform. It's very intentional, I think, that they don't use the term disinformation because they they're very hesitant to ascribe that intent. But I think it's important. This is part of a, an intentional campaign when we're talking about our foreign adversaries and some, you know, fringe political actors, hyper-partisan political actors here in the States as well. Um, And we need to call it what it is. It's a threat to democracy.
0: No, no, absolutely. I think calling it what it is, you can't also fight something when you can't name it, you know? But I, I agree that obviously on Trump's side with, creating, uh, you know, making fake news sort of like a pejorative term has rendered it useless on the left wing or the progressive side as well. Like, I I do think that fake news is just a total... It's kind of like the butt of the joke at this point. I don't yeah. think that anybody takes it seriously as a, as a term. You kind of roll your eyes because you immediately connote it with people like Trump. But yeah. um, something else you touched upon is like propaganda. What's so interesting to me to think about is sort of like the genesis of the Russian disinformation campaign. It looks so different from Soviet propaganda because of its t- intent, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um But I don't think people think about the information war having gone on for decades, even though it has. But it's like obviously just taken on such a different form in the internet era. It's just become more precise, more Mm -hmm. expansive. Um, And I think that there's this idea that it's just a bunch of bots spreading false information, which is what I think Facebook would like you to believe. (laughs) But, But what you bring to the table, which I think is really important, is that online influence involves local actors weaponizing emotion to sow division. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how this actually plays out on Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms? Like how do people, how do they emotion, how do they weaponize emotion in like a local context? Yeah, so I think,
1: Basically, whether we're talking about foreign or domestic disinformation, um, the local actor is is really key in this case so um, to to put it in the Russian context first, the book starts out with um, one of my favorite stories to tell now and when one I think that gives people a real kick uh, about a a Les Miserables flash mob that took place outside of the White House in July two, 2017, on July 4th actually, um, and I do theater in my spare time, so I was living in Ukraine at the time, but I remember seeing people posting about this on Facebook. And I I remember seeing an ad for it. um, This this flash mob where people are going to be dressing up in colonial attire and protesting President Trump in, in 2017, which I just thought was great because, you know, at the time we had, you know, environmentalists and scientists and and uh, lawyers all doing their own, you know, forms of, of protest. And of course, the theater people had to get in on it. Um, lo and behold, fast forward a little bit more than a year to October 2018, when a criminal complaint uh, in part of the wider Russia investigation is released and unsealed in Virginia, that shows that, part of the Lamez flash mob that took place was actually paid for, uh, the ads that that advertised it were paid for by the Internet Research Agency out of St. Petersburg, Russia. And this is actually a pretty common tactic that the Internet Research Agency used. They uh, would look at protest groups or activist groups and find ways to support or amplify their protests and and posts uh, and content writ large because basically it gave them an air of of plausible deniability, right? It, It put some space between Uh, the action taking place, and the Russian actors. And at that point, you know, we were uh, a little bit more aware of of the shenanigans that were going on. Um, But the, the activists themselves had no idea they were being used, right? They were doing their authentic activism. There's nothing wrong with that. And as one of the organizers of the protest said to me, you know, Somebody just messaged us and and said, do you want $80 worth of ads? We weren't going to say no, because unless they were like politicians for killing puppies, we're going to take their money. We're a poor activist group. And it was one of the more successful protests that this group did. Um, And they were actually quite... they were in the headlines a lot. They passed out you know, uh, f- Russian flags at the Conservative Political Action Conference. They unfurled a resist banner at the Nationals, uh, the baseball team here in Washington's home opener. Um, they, were, they were very active, but this is one of the most successful protests that they had. And it was in no small part due to that $80 in advertising that put information in front of 30,000 people in the Washington area. And for some reason, me and Ukraine, I still haven't figured that out. I guess maybe I had both cities as my... <laughs> My hometown. But, but that's a really good example of how Russia in particular identifies authentic local voices in order to deliver their message. Um, here in the States, when we're talking about domestic disinformation, and, and to some extent, this is true in, in other countries, Ukraine, this has certainly been one of the tactics that's used as well. Um, where there is a dearth of local information, where there's kind of a news vacuum or a news desert, that presents uh, an ideal kind of vulnerable attack surface for disinformers to abuse, whether, again, that's foreign or or domestic disinformers. We've seen a lot of disinformation websites for monetary gain that are made to look like authentic local news websites. Um, and again, that's that's a really dangerous thing because people trust the local authentic voices much more than they trust something at the federal level or, you know, a lot of people might trust celebrities, but they don't necessarily trust government officials and things like that. So those, you know, it's it's not only a vulnerability, but it's also something that we need to think about in terms of how do we put those local voices, local vectors to use for fighting disinformation. I don't think anybody's really thought about that yet.
0: No. And it obviously has, it just, it could produce all of these terrible ramifications. It's not just about Donald Trump getting elected. I mean, you talk a little bit about how it can perpetuate and embolden domestic terrorism. Like, has that, have you studied that at all about how, like in these, these news deserts? Is that where domestic terrorist activity is happening, or like what does it actually look like?
1: So one thing that's really worrisome, particularly over the past couple of months, as coronavirus um has you know just thrust us into a new information environment, a much more intense information environment. Um, I think groups and uh, and whatsapp like encrypted messengers in particular, but but also Facebook groups have provided safe harbor for a lot of those really scary and violent organizations because essentially the social media platforms have figured out that people right now want to feel like they're in a more private space when they're getting their information. That's a trusted vector. And in fact, the Internet Research Agency also uh, figured that out. They used Facebook pages that were built up over time and created kind of trusted um, trusted you know, spaces for people to interact in. Um, the same thing is happening with Facebook groups, except you can't have, uh, you you could not have a, a private Facebook page. You can have a private or a secret even Facebook group. Um, and so this has led to some serious consequences, uh, in terms of movements like QAnon, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, these spaces that share a lot of disinformation that are sharing, you know, again, and it is disinformation because it's with malign intent, uh, sharing all this stuff. It's led to actual violence on the streets. You know, there's a reason that QAnon is labeled a domestic terrorist organization by the FBI. Um, and, uh, it is pretty scary. You know, I think, something that is often overlooked is the real world ramifications of disinformation, whether that's on public health during coronavirus, public safety during the George Floyd protests. Even if you go back to, to 2016, you know, the, the protest in front of the white house is one example, but there were also other protests organized by the IRA more directly um, in which they had dueling protests on, on either side of the street. And as you know, violence at these these sorts of events becomes more commonplace as we see more people going out there who are armed. Um it's certainly a powder keg sort of situation. And uh, you know, whether it's Russia who is um kind of amplifying these these fissures and feelings, or whether it's a domestic actor, we have to understand that the infrastructure of social media is created to enrage us or to capitalize on our enrage enragement enraging content is the most engaging content and um and that's a very scary thought and one that i that's the that's the thing that i think we really need to focus in on um as our legislators start to think about you know what does it look like if we're going to regulate social media um there is potential for real world harm and right now the social media platforms do not have that that interest, the duty of care to their users at heart, um, what motivates them is is profit
0: yeah, clearly I mean we how many times have we seen Mark Zuckerberg have to testify before Congress without anything actually happening i mean, I think. Maybe other governments are doing a slightly better job than the U.S., but we just have a very flimsy infrastructure for actually combating a threat that could take on a myriad of hydra heads, be it misinformation about the most consequential election of our lifetimes or about the quote unquote chaos and violence happening at the George Floyd protests, which has you know, produced a deadly white supremacist call to arms in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin. Or it could be about the public health crisis vis-a-vis the coronavirus. I don't know if they even need that much influence campaign, that many campaigns right now when there are literal QAnon activists running for Congress and winning. Um, You know, there's that going on. But as what you were saying, like with Facebook and Twitter being these sort of safe havens for domestic terrorist activity or misinformation activity to thrive, um, what... Like, how are current government regulations shaping the landscape? What is What are they actually doing right now? What would you like to see them doing differently? Because for me, too, tech is big tech is just shrouded in all of this mystery. Like, I don't know where their money is coming from. I don't know which Congress people they have their hands in the pockets of. Can you expound a little bit upon the major players who are determining the state's relationship with tech? Like, what exactly are their vested interests. I mean obviously profit, but like what what is the hold here? Is there something that the government could be doing that it's not doing?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the hold unfortunately is the politicization of this issue and that came through a ton in my research and it's not something that I really expected to be the main thrust of the book, but given the the context and the developments as I did the research, um it totally is and that and it's that You know, you can have a clear eyed view that Russian or Chinese disinformation is a threat. But if you yourself are using disinformation or you're turning a blind eye to the use of domestic disinformation, you cannot fight it in totality. Um, There's an incongruence there that just means that it's going to continue and that those loopholes are going to be exploited. So, as an example, one of the Easiest things and like lowest hanging fruit that that we could address um, ahead of the twenty twenty election, and it's not going to happen at this point. Uh, but it's something that we could have done as early as twenty seventeen is uh, close the loopholes on transparency around online political advertising. Um, the Honest Ads Act is basically. Uh, it's a bipartisan piece of legislation sponsored by Senators Amy, Klo- Amy Klobuchar, Mark Warner, uh, and originally was sponsored by John McCain after he passed away. Um, Lindsey Graham of all people took over his his spot uh, on the sponsored no, I'm not it's a, it has bipartisan support and all it does is put the same amount of transparency that we have on TV radio and print ads onto online advertising. It's incredibly important, Um, not only so that we understand if foreign entities are uh, advertising to us during electoral periods, which of course they're expressly uh, not allowed to do, but to just give people more information about what the content they are looking at, uh, what its provenance is, where it came from, why they're being targeted. And we don't even have that basic disclosure. Some of the platforms are... Enforcing their own kind of version of honest ads. Facebook has its ad library, but um, there are, (laughs) unfortunately, the product isn't perfect. Uh, When I was in Ukraine in 2019, there were a ton of loopholes in the ad library. It was missing ads a lot of the time. I'm sure it's improved in the past year. but it's still an imperfect product, and there is no consequence if Facebook gets it wrong right now or any other platform. I'm not just picking on Facebook. Uh, Twitter, of course, has turned off all political advertising ahead of the election, which some people say is a cop out. Uh, Google is is turning off ads after voting closes on November third because uh, they're afraid of you know what misinformation might come um, as the election is certified. So the ads are clearly a problem, but it's also not something that that you know. It should be a partisan issue, and yet we have not been able to get that through Congress. This bill has been sitting in what congressional staffers refer to me as the uh, in the election security graveyard um, because there's just a bunch of of bills um, that also deal with things like making sure our election infrastructure is safe from cyber attacks, stuff like that, uh, that are just sitting in Congress because it's too much of a, a partisan issue, unfortunately, and that's the main obstacle. Um, to us getting any sort of tech regulation on the books, um the other obstacle is that this is a really difficult issue, <laughs> unsurprisingly, especially in America, where we have this uh you know very understandable and well placed reverence for the First Amendment and free speech um, without quashing legitimate speech. It is really difficult to to have any sort of regulation around disinformation, and there are without getting too uh, too detailed here, there are, there are a lot of legal frameworks for these uh, sorts of of bills that have come from the UN and other organizations. Um, there are a couple countries who have tried to impose some sort of social media regulation. And even in places like Germany, places with established democracies, there have been un- unintended consequences of, of those pieces of legislation. So I think the US is right to be careful. But at this point, With as long as we've waited. We're almost we're abdicating our responsibility as the the place where all these um these companies were born because the the regulations that we put into effect are, effect are going to have ripple effects around the globe uh, in places you know where they can't get Mark Zuckerberg to testify even the UK hasn't been able to get Mark Zuckerberg in front of them um, so it, it's important that we get this right um, and understand that that disinformation is not a partisan issue just because it benefits one party today doesn't mean that that might not. Flip around tomorrow. Just just because Russia is the most prevalent threat today doesn't mean that you know tomorrow it won't be China, Iran, or who knows who else.
0: Um, It sounds like they're all trying to have a go. Oh, absolutely!
1: And it's an existential threat. It is the new reality, and we need to get our regulatory space up to speed and protect our elections. Not only that, but protect our democratic discourse. I mean, we cannot have a functional democracy without. People being able to get information, to vet that information and to pass back their thoughts and feelings to their elected representatives, whether that's, you know, reaching out online, going to town halls or, or, you know, expressing their opinion in the ballot box. That is the sacred process. And right now that is very, very much um, under attack.
0: No, I mean, God, no kidding. I wake up with those thoughts every single day. But I, yeah, I mean, I think the part of the problem is, is the way that we're even framing companies like Facebook or Twitter. We see them as these social media platforms, but what they really are are media companies. And, and when we think about, you know, the First Amendment, and you're right, like, we obviously should be we should treat the First Amendment with the reverence that it deserves. However, I think that what's always missing from the First Amendment conversation is sort of the responsibilities that you hold when you have the the right to freedom of speech. Um, And we hold media companies like the New York Times accountable to those kinds of regulations. Like they can't just, the New York Times would be destroyed if it were Pushing forward some of the disinformation that Facebook has been responsible for, for instance, but we have we have those regulations in place for understanding how we can actually treat like the media media infrastructure in our country, and I think that one of the issues is that we should just have similar expectations of these other social media because it is essentially a media company, like whether I'm reading the news or not, I'm getting my news source from Instagram because of how people share information now, so
1: I yeah. That gets really complicated. So there's something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And what this does, basically, there's an entire book on this, by the way, um, that is really good. Uh, it is called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. And it tracks how, uh, you know, all of these landmark speech cases ended up in giving the internet companies, and we're talking like CompuServe in the 1990s, um, intermediary liability so they are not responsible for the content that users post because uh, as long as they did not know that it existed uh, or was manifestly illegal ahead of time um, and basically the the undue burden that this would put on companies to need to look through every piece of content particularly those those companies that have um, such a huge scale like Facebook it would just it would it would send them under. And I'm sure there are some listeners right now who are like, yeah, send them under. Um, but there are, you know, positive implications for the way that Facebook and other social media have affected democracy. I mean, when I used to work at NDI, what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, uh, online organizing was one of the main ways that people in authoritarian states could, could reach potential constituents and could get activism done. Um, of course things have gotten out of control now and we need to we need to pull back but i don't know that removing uh the intermediary liability is going to change that very much i think instead um what could happen and in fact we've seen this in in some other countries that have introduced pretty strict counter disinformation anti fake news laws is that it there's a chilling effect on speech um because either platforms are over removing content and um, kind of removing content that that doesn't go against either their terms of service or the the local law, or uh, people start to self censor because they don't want to get their content removed, or they don't want to incur a fine. Um, if they're in a country that has, you know, fines for fake news and, and such. So it's a very delicate balance. And instead, I think the answer lies in some combination of clearly punishing the bad actors, whether foreign or domestic, again, these kind of massive um, disinformation hubs for uh, for spreading and amplifying this content um, inauthentically. So that's number one. Um, we also need to have some red lines in the international space for, you know, adversaries that are doing this. Uh, we need to have some oversight and transparency around what the platforms are doing, because right now we don't have anything related to that. And that's really important because they're taking down speech right now uh, that should be left up. They are definitely privileging some voices over others. And um, that's a very scary, scary scenario. But we also need to make sure that people are equipped with the tools they need to navigate this information environment, whether that is uh, building up media literacy and digital literacy, which is something that my book strongly suggests based on the case studies that I go through in there, in particular places like Estonia and Ukraine have realized that they need to build up those re- resilient societies. But that also means we need to give them the, the infrastructure necessary for that. So I actually really like what Twitter's been doing ahead of this election. I think you know they were very slow off the starting block, but but they're starting to figure it out now, which is by creating friction and and adding context to things that are false or misleading, um, we can sway the conversation. We can slow down the spread of false information, um, and ultimately, I think as they test these features, things like a pop-up that, as you retweet something, if you haven't opened the link, that says, "Do you want to re- do you want to read this story before you retweet it?" Or um, some of the things that they've put, for instance, on the president's tweets, where there's an interstitial title over the tweet that says, "This contains false or misleading information. Click to uncover." That gives people the context that they need ahead of time, rather than just like you know um, a subtitle somewhere that says this contains false or misleading information that people can very easily ignore. Um, I think that is the way forward, and that does require some content moderation and content review, but it's not—it's ultimately not censoring speech either, um, which I think is something that many many Americans are are worried about. So it's complicated. Um, but that being said, you know if you think about. The tobacco industry, or even you know, Zainab uh, Tufekci, who works at uh, the University of North Carolina and wrote the book Twitter and Tear Gas, um, she often talks about the internet as the early era of uh, regulation of cars and how we didn't have seat belts or windscreens or any of the basic safety features, airbags, we didn't have rules on the road, driving laws, all this stuff. All of we're, we're still that early on in the internet era. It's only been around for 30 years, right? So we need to set those rules of the road um, so that there isn't more offline harm done from what's going on online. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that that's a beast that can be contained though? Do you think, but I, some, cause sometimes I feel like the internet has just, we've just created a monster that we can't even control at this point.
1: I think we we have to, we have to try. Um, otherwise it will be totally out of control. I mean, I think we're getting there already with the micro targeting that exists. It's, it's pretty scary stuff. Um, and we need to make sure that we're protecting consumers, um, again, that we're giving them the tools they need to make decisions that are, uh, based in fact. Um, I was just doing a, an event, um, recently with a, uh, Infectious disease specialist and virologist who said that he thinks at least eighty thousand people have died because of dis and misinformation surrounding coronavirus and like n- not wearing masks and the you know the efficacy of certain treatments and things like that uh, or the the seriousness of the disease um, and that 's really scary so
0: breaking too yeah,
1: I mean I think we need to we need to try um, and it 's going to be kind of touch and go, but there's again. Um, not just in the resilience building, not just in the counter foreign adversary space, but in the legislative space, there are a couple of countries who have who have tried, and I wouldn't say they've failed, but we've seen some lessons learned from their uh their early nascent, you know, attempts at at legislating against disinformation um, that we can certainly learn from, and we've never shrunken from a challenge before here in the United States. So I think I think we need to just understand that this is a bipartisan issue or a nonpartisan issue, even better, um, and something that we need Congress to step in on in order to protect again the the very thing we hold dear in this country, which is our democratic process. Mm.
0: Are there I mean like you bring up a lot of examples in the books sort of cross cultural examples um and I know that it doesn't seem like any place is kind of doing it perfectly but is there is there a country or a state where we should like that we should model ourselves on in terms of confronting these issues in terms of taking the information war seriously as we should
1: I don't think there is one perfect example um I always bring up Estonia Uh, because they're just a, frankly, fascinating place. Uh, You know, 1.3 million people. uh, I look at the events in 2007 where Russia used disinformation in order to instigate riots between the ethnic Russian and ethnic Estonian population um, as one of the earliest indications of the modern information war that we're in. Uh, What Estonia realized is that it's not just about kind of cyber defenses. It's not just about um you know kinetically pushing back against russia uh building up their army all that sort of thing it's also about building resilience and so they invested in education they invested in russian language media they invested in integration opportunities for the russian population so that uh they would feel you know an included part of society um and i think all of that is a good example of of what we in the united states need to start investing in these generational solutions that like Yes, they are not going to solve the problem right now. It's it's clear that that's not going to happen. Uh, but they will make us safer in the future, whether the threat's coming from Russia or elsewhere. Um, and those are things that are really hard to sell on Capitol Hill because <laughs> they, frankly, uh, the return on investment is too far down the road for most politicians to want to sign on to. Um, but it's absolutely critical if we are to win this war in the long run. Um, and again, to, to restore the health of our democracy. So I would say Estonia is, is an interesting example. Obviously, a small, uh, you know, fairly homogeneous Baltic country is not necessarily a model for the United States. But if a small Baltic country that you know, just earned its independence in 1991 after years of Soviet repression can, can take on these difficult topics, then certainly the United States of America can.
0: It, yeah exactly. It's one point three million people as opposed to like well, the most powerful country on earth <laughs> to <be> able to <laughs> be able to defend itself against the threats, but I guess the issue that you're getting at, that we've been getting at throughout this conversation is that at least right now, um the people that hold power kind of see it see confronting the information war and actually solving it as um sort of a threat to their own power. I think that's probably one of the incentives of not, I mean, I know that that's why Trump and like the Republicans are resist. why it's become such a partisan issue in the States. Um, but, you know, as you said, like it could, you know, we could easily flip the switch at some point and the disinformation campaign could benefit progressives. Um, so it, it doesn't, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, even though that's like its current iteration. And I think that that's what's really scary to, individuals including myself who just feel a little bit powerless in the face of how how widespread and um precise the problem and expansive the problem is um you've touched upon this a little bit already but given that given that there's just so much mistrust from the government and in the media and in each other what Do you have any advice about how we as people can continue to to fight back?
1: Yeah, I I would frame it less as an active fighting back than more of just like rewiring your reflexes um, and fighting against what the social media companies want you to do, which is, you know, continue scrolling and share things immediately. (laughs) So if you feel yourself getting really upset from a piece of content, um again engaging content is usually enraging content so just take a step back practice some informational distancing uh put your device down close your computer take a walk um and if you're still feeling curious about that piece of content in a little bit then you can do some easy research just look at the website see if it's trustworthy uh, what what indicates trustworthiness? Do they have a contact us page that actually has a physical, address and a phone number, not just a web form? Is that author somebody who's published things of quality before, not just the incendiary sort of article that you're reading there? Um, you know, that sort of thing is really important. Looking across websites, so taking a piece of the te- of the text, dropping it into Google, and seeing if any other direct hits come up for that text, because often that's a good indication of, of monetary um, kind of goal disinformation. So people who are just click farming it, Um, you can learn how to do a reverse image search. So that's a great way to identify if an image has been misappropriated. Um, Often Russia does this in Ukraine, they'll use pictures from like the Balkans in 1990s uh, to, to represent Ukraine. Um, but domestic disinformers do it as well. So, uh, that's a plugin that either is, you know, part of Google Chrome. If you're using that, there are a couple other ways to do reverse image search as well. And it'll show you the first instance of that image on the internet. It'll show you similar images. So you can sometimes see if something's been edited or, um, or kind of manipulated in other ways. These are all really easy things for people to do. And in general, if you're not sure about something, don't just share it f- so that, you know, your friends can can figure it out for you. Because we're all contributing to the amplification of that material, even when we're just engaging with it, you know, liking or reacting to it in other ways, commenting, um, we're contributing to that amplification. So just slow down, think before you share. And if you see somebody, somebody you love, friend, family member sharing disinformation, information, rather than uh rather than you know trying to fight with them publicly the best thing to do is is to take that Privately message them, and and rather than just dropping, you know, a link to a fact checking site immediately, the best thing you can do is is just try to talk them through it. Understand where they're coming from. Let them understand where you're coming from, and bring some humanity back to the conversation. Because if you do it in public, people are just going to dig in. Uh, if you send them a Snopes link right away, the same thing will happen. But if you understand what motivated them to get to that content to begin with, um, then you might be able to have a more productive conversation in the end.
0: I think that's actually a really nice note to end on, putting the humanity back in our democracy. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It was really eye opening for me. I, I mean, if it's not obvious, I, I'm myself, am very overwhelmed by this whole issue <laughs> and, and really scared about what's to come in November. But you know, I think that if people read your book, then we as ind- as people can just We'll stop feeding the trolls, frankly. Like, I think it is just about not giving people attention. I hope so. I hope
1: so. Um, And and also, I think the book provides some hope, too, because it's like we are not the only country that's dealing with this. And frankly, if we learn from our allies and partners in Europe, if we work with our allies and partners in Europe, our response to this is going to be much more potent. Um, Now we just need the political will to do that.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Um, for everybody listening, you can find Nina's book on Bloomsbury's website. Um, I'll link to it on the show notes. But uh, yeah, thanks, done. <laughs> thank you so much.